Blog Talk Radio. It's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time, we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern pilot crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger carrying aircraft, to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations. Finally, as flight attendants in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s, Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales, and reservation system, Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of Eastern. It's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending sending the stories to us at eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D at yahoo.com. We'll record your story and read on the air. Better yet, Why not record your story in your own voice and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the the copy of the recording, send to the above address, and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever. 
Now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. Here's a story that might be of special interest to airline pilots. ALPA, or the Airline Pilots Association, was initially a pilot's air safety organization with the labor union moniker shunned. The national airline strike of 1948 changed ALPA forever. It became first a labor union that also supported and lobbied air safety. The gold book, Duty Rigs That Stop Pilot Abuse as Below Described, was invented by Eastern's captain Van Rowland. The government had already regulated how many hours a week, month, and year a pilot could fly commercially. The monthly restriction was 85 hours a month, so the companies flew pilots 85 hours a month. Hard flying, no pay for sitting before or after every flight, filing required paperwork, broken airplanes, away from home, and other non-flying duties. The gold book stopped such abuses. The example I like was the Constellation trip, Atlanta to Macon, a 30-minute flight. You flew one round trip a day, six days a week the whole month. The pilots got to Macon and sat for 12 hours before returning to Atlanta. So this was a 14-hour workday each day for which the pilots got paid one hour for the round trip of flying. That included check-in one hour before flight time, one hour round trip flying, 12 hours setting in Macon equal 14 hours. The pilots at the end of the month got paid a maximum of 27 hours flying in a 31-day month. Starvation wages when 80 plus hours was the normal monthly pay for other pilots. The gold book forced the airline companies to officially schedule the pilot or be penalized. The making example would have never been scheduled under the gold book because of the hour flight time formulas that required the companies to pay the pilot for just sitting doing nothing between flights. The 12 hour sit in Macon would have accrued flight time and pay. In effect, the company would have to pay the pilot for the company's inefficient scheduling. Today's pilot has almost the same duty regs as envisioned by Van Roland, but the companies have mostly learned to officially schedule the pilot. So less and less, pilots get paid to just sit at the company's pleasure. This was submitted by Captain Steve McDonald. new Boeing 727 jet. Look how high the tail is. 34 feet. Look where they put the jets. In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern.
This story comes up to us from the book, The Wings of Man. It's titled The Finale, Closing the Baggage Service by June Eberhardt. Baggage Service at Miami Airport. Though I was born in California, my days with Eastern Airlines began in Chicago in 1964. My first job was in payload controlled. This means to counteract lost space due to no-shows, we were forced to overbook in order to achieve a good load factor or profitable flight. During holiday times, we would often have to book way over the available capacity, and if everyone showed, we would bring in another airplane called an extra section to accommodate the passengers. One time, an agent told a customer that although the flight was overbooked, she should not worry as Eastern would have space for her in the extra section. Her reply caused much mirth to the agent. Oh, no you don't, she said. If I can't get in the airplane, I certainly will not ride in any extra section. My last 12 years were in baggage service at Miami Airport. Life was good with great travel benefits. However, baggage service was a challenge, both mentally and physically. Large misplaced bags were toted and lifted by us personally. Wheels were then only beginning to appear on passenger luggage. Most customers we encountered were not happy. In fact, some were furious. We realized their luggage was missing or damaged. They had the right to be upset, so we didn't take it personally. Therefore, we were able to communicate with logic. I had a mental routine that worked for me. Unsmiling with a serious expression, I would look into the eyes of the person and inwardly think, I love you, over and over. In the middle of their verbal barrage, they would certainly melt and say, I'm sorry for speaking to you in that way. Then I was able to take the information to report the loss and start the movement of finding their bag. Claude Pepper, a former Florida senator, became a regular and my favorite. He was never upset or angry. Because of the stability he brought to our counter, I became so fond of him I almost went to his funeral. Once, a lady who borrowed an expensive Louis Vuitton elephant skin carry-on bag checked it at the counter. Long and sticky luggage tags were used then, and when she pulled the tab off, all those little wiggly multi-brown lines came off too. When told we were unable to replace or repair any more, she actually cried. I told her I would try to get the bag repaired. I went to a hobby shop and purchased little bottles of brown paint that matched the various colors on the exclusive bag. Every night for two weeks, I painted lines, then used clear sealer over the artwork. Even when finished, it looked great, and she was delighted. I told her the bag should never be checked again, as those bags were fragile and should only be carried on board. Many things, other than luggage problems, happened in baggage service. One day, we lost a lady. An elderly lady with mental problems was checked in by her daughter in Birmingham with our assisted care, bound for Jamaica. She was to change planes in Miami, and was seated in a special room for assisted care persons, be they children or adults. That evening, someone from that department came to us with her purse. Her ticket and money were still inside. Upon checking, we found she had left the room on her own and did not take her flight. Calling a phone number found inside the bag, we found her daughter in Alabama, who gave a description of her mother and what she wore. After work, I walked all over the airport and went in early the next day, walking all over again to no avail. I found I couldn't make a missing report, but her daughter did. On the fourth day, a policeman came and said she was found walking the streets of Miami and was taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital's mental department. 
The daughter gave permission for her to be released to me. Luckily, the next day was my day off, so I flew with her to Kingston. There the rest of her family collected her. Another time, cancer medication was boarded up north, also from Jamaica. It was kept on ice in the galley. When the ice was changed in Miami, the medicine went with it. This medicine was for a young girl and could not be purchased on the islands. So I was appointed to find what was needed. I called many Miami doctors before locating someone in one of our hospitals who gave me the medication with no charge. Yes, he proved there are great people in the world. I hope it worked and now she's a healthy adult. Near the end of our time with Eastern and on the first walkout, airplanes came in, parked, and luggage was offloaded on our ramp area. Early the next morning, we were called to come in early for a special meeting. I went to baggage service first and looked at the ramp to see hundreds of bags piled everywhere. At the meeting, we were told to turn in our IDs and to apply for unemployment. When my turn came, I said, have you seen the ramp? And said that I was going back to work as those bags needed to be sent to the owners. I proceeded to work 16 hours a day for six days, and on the evening of the sixth day, all bags had been taken care of. I had a driver's license for the ramp and would load up eight or ten bags on the baggage cart for each flight. All ramp personnel were great, except TWA, which refused our transfers. I went to the director for TWA, explained the ramp's refusal, and pointed out that as TWA was the final carrier, it would need to take the claims and settle all missing luggage. He told me to take the luggage to the ticket counter and send them to the ramp that way, and we would make sure they were not refused. So all worked out for me and for the passengers. On the morning of my seventh day, I was called to come back to work, this time for pay. There were only a few of us now in baggage service. There were no cleaners, no money for repairs or delivery, and no security to check claim checks. Every day we had to mop the claim area floor, which was huge and white. Scuff marks were really hard to remove. This was also a time before plastic wrap. Many bags with a hard side tab type and don't believe the story about an elephant stand on them. Our ramp workers easily made holes and cracks in the luggage. As many continued to South America, they needed repairs. Mike's luggage of Miami taught me how to heat seal, so I purchased the heat sealer and plastic. Passengers were told we couldn't replace the luggage, but we could repair. They were advised it might not look so good, but we would be serviceable. Now I had a new duty. We delivered bags on our way home to those who lived in our general direction. One group of people I remember fondly was from San Juan. They waited for us to check claim checks. There were many that didn't. One night I was the only one on duty. A San Juan flight came in. The ramp called in to tell me a case of honey had been checked in, and all luggage in that bin was covered in honey. I filled wastebaskets with water and hand paper towels had paper towels lined up, and then made the announcement regarding the honey. As we were having financial difficulties, we could not send the luggage out for cleaning. But if they would bring the luggage to me, I would wash them. I washed one bag. All the rest were washed by the owners. No one complained, and I never knew who checked the honey. Then the day came when the doors were closed. I was out of town. Red Alexander was in charge at that time. I was called and told arrangements had been made for me to come home on U.S. Air. I spent the next three days closing baggage service for good. I loved our airline and always felt if we worked hard enough, we would survive. I did my best. When the end came, 
It was like a best friend died. That's when I realized nothing will last forever. This was a great employee, June Eberhardt. She worked at several positions at Easter. Her last was baggage service at Miami International Airport. And I'll have to say, there must be a special place in airline heaven for baggage service workers. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. This story comes to us from Eastern Captain Steve McDonald. It's entitled, Eastern's Cuban Airlift. We started the regular schedule to Cuba shortly after Electras were brought back to the Miami crew base to fly Miami, Nassau, and Miami Freeport, called the Bahamas Express. There was also a daily Miami, Vero Beach, Ocala, Gainesville, Jacksonville turnaround with a 3 hour and 59 minute layover in Jacksonville. It was truly the junior trip on the bid sheet. I would guess the Bahamas Express started with a Section 28 about spring of 1970. We must have got the contract away from PA Pan American because the service to UVR started up about the same time. We were not flying the Cuban area prior to spring of 1970 that I know about. Electras were used earlier and only specifically to retrieve passengers that had been involved in hijacking. Castro would not let the hijacked plane fly the passengers out of Jose Marti, Havana. Instead, he had them bus to Veradero, where we sent rescue electors to pick them up for return to the USA. I flew two of those rescue flights with Bill Bowers and Jack Williams to Veradero in fall winter of 1969. The two stewards both spoke fluent Spanish and had 60 years combined service with EAL. I suspect, like the pilots, it was not a bid thing, but an assignment from the office. Ford Smith, Sandy's son, was number one co-pilot when the Bahamas Shuttle Express started and he flew the Cuban airlifts. As he and a few others moved on, I eventually became number one co-pilot, getting DC-8 bypass pay for flying the Electra. What a deal. 100% foreign to boot. I was there until the end of the Electra flying in Miami of 1973. Art Dunlop was boss, but we rarely saw him flying. Tommy Tompkins was assistant boss, and he was everywhere. He was hard-headed, but had a prankster streak in him. If you did your job, you got along with Tommy. Likely as not, you'd be the brunt of one of his pranks. So we reciprocated. We had our own ramp service guys who, like us, bid for the Bahamas Express and were specifically assigned. The one main agent assigned was Jack Howard, who was a real prankster. 
He must have worked overtime seven days a week because he was always there to meet or dispatch the flight. Dispatch release papers were usually at the departure gate and rarely in operations. Mechanics were not specifically assigned, as I recall. We exclusively used gates D1 and D3 at Miami for the Bahamas and Jacksonville flights. The Cuban airlift plane was always an Electra parked away from the terminal. The customs and immigration guys let us bring back Cuban cigars and other stuff we purchased in the UVR terminal. Of course, they were also doing that. I brought a box of Romeo and Juliet or Monte Cristo cigars home all, almost after every flight and gave them to friends or for presents. I wasn't a smoker. The same Cubana agent handled us all the time, so we got to know him. As the final flight day approached, Tommy told the agent to put anyone on the airplane that wanted to go. The Cubana agent did not quite understand, so Tommy told him if 150 people want to get on that plane, load them because Castro would never shoot down the last flight. Tommy also told the agent to get his family and himself onto the plane as they were welcome. When we arrived for the last flight, the agent was in tears because he wanted to go with us, but he couldn't get his family past the guards. One of the similarities amongst all the flights except the final flight was that there was no luggage for the 80-plus passengers we carried day in and day out. The baggage carts awaiting our plane might have five or six bags total every flight. The fly final flight was a complete surprise. The baggage carts were jammed full of luggage for this flight, and the passengers, instead of looking like the usual prison inmates, were dressed in Palm Beach suits and evening dresses, and I mean pre-1958 Palm Beach suits. It was a stunning array to watch these people boarding the plane. They were obviously quality, wealthy people who had bought their way out of Cuba on the last flight. Our non-airlift recollection was that Cruzkid called me on day one day and asked if I wanted to fly a charter to the Berry Islands with Burt Beach. Higginbottom was taking some of his buddies fishing for the day. It didn't appeal to me, so I declined and pal Charlie Combs got the trip. They landed at Chubb K. Bert was taxiing in. The ground crew signaled Bert for a sharp right turn. Bert looked at the close-by palm trees and stopped, signaled the ground crewman that Bert thought the trees were too close. Ground crew goes over and looks at the wingtip and gives Bert a thumbs up. Crash, got the wingtip. And Higginbottom was furious. Another plane had to be dispatched and Burt's plane had to have a ferry crew. Those guys were stuck, stuck all day in Chubb Bay in uniform with no place to go. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Have you ever been mistaken for someone that looked like you? Were there any consequences? Our next story is called Mistaken Identity. The author is unknown and it appeared in the book The Wings of Many. During the early 50s, Colonial Airlines had a DC-3 flight scheduled for a short layover in Glen Falls, New York. 
I was responsible for the arrangements with the airport coffee shop operator to cater the flight with coffee and rolls for the following morning. Each morning, the coffee went from bad to worse and worser yet, if there is such a word. This, of course, finally necessitated a report to the front office because of the many passenger complaints. Captain Don Dion, who looked very much like me, happened to be on the same schedule that morning. He, smiling, entered the coffee shop with his usual good mornings, just as the owner was reading the colonial report. Looking into the whites of Don's eyes, and thinking he was I, she let out with a fusillade of verbal bombardment not suitable for print here, so that Captain Don Dion literally backed off for fear of physical dismemberment. She was three times his size and width, and somewhat related to Mamie of Moon Mullins, K.O. and Uncle Willie. When the fireworks subsided, Captain Don Dion explained he was innocent, and she had him mistaken him for someone else. Fortunately, I got the message somehow, so on my next trip, I avoided the coffee shop like the plague. I told my co-pilot to carry on while I pre-flighted the airplane. Anything to avoid any encounter with the roar of that Sherman tank. Mistaken identity also played a part when Don made an emergency landing with the Constellation because of a malfunction of the nose gear. Don did an incredible job. Soon after, fellow pilots who apparently did not know us apart were congratulating me. At first, I tried to explain that I was the other guy, but realized it proved embarrassing to our fellow pilots. Thereafter, I just lowered my head, thanked him, and passed it off as a job in the line of duty. Best of all, when Don was away on a flight, JFK Kruskhead thought he was calling me for a flight during the early morning hours. Unfortunately, the phone rang at Don's home, not mine. Helen, his wife, is still trying to figure out why they called her from me. She told them that I was not in her bed. She also asked if they didn't know where Don was, how would she know? But retirement settled our problem. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. As Captain Neal has stated many times, what makes Eastern Airlines was such a great place was the people. Lots of great people, but there were also lots of, shall we say, characters. One such character was Captain Slim Babbitt. What's to say about Slim Babbitt? Retired as number one on the seniority list. There are so many legends that it's likely to fill a book. There's the imported tire caper from the MTD. The Cuba hijacking. The junior most pilot in the pictures hanging in the Vero Beach Ops office. Truly the list is endless. Let me relate one legend. Seat swapping on the 720, Art Dunlop and Jack Foster flew with Slim. Slim annoyed the co-pilots with, Give me the map, boy, or some such aggravation. Since Slim never opened his flight bag, the co-pilot had to supply everything. Art and Jack decided to fix Slim by putting a window sash weight in his flight bag. They found his bag in the bag room and put the sash weight in the bottom. 
For the next four or so months, everyone could hear an aging Slim muttering about how heavy the flight bags were getting. Finally, Slim decided to clean out his flight bag and discovered the sash weight. Chief Pilot Jerry Wood was informed and a cane mutiny investigation ensued. Who did it? Although many knew, Art and Jack were never exposed. I don't think Slim found out until after he retired. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel, La Jolla. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft, Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept a plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Killing this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum. One from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, the hope. This next story comes to us from the Wings of Man. And the article is entitled, Eastern Launches Airbus in North America by Charles J. Simons. Charles Simons was a former chief financial officer at Eastern, and this was an interview he gave several years ago conducted by Roland Moore. We've mentioned in several articles before about some of the first Eastern, uh, first Eastern had in several phases of aviation. This is another first that still has ramifications even to this day. History will record that Charlie was witness to one of the most historic events in the history of commercial aviation. The entry of Airbus into the North American market and direct competition with Boeing, Lockheed, and McDonnell Douglas. An Airbus article titled Champagne and Drought states that if Airbus was to succeed, it would have to crack the lucrative U.S. market. It noted that Frank Borman and Eastern Airlines support would prove crucial to the survival of Airbus industry and help establish the basis for its future success. The first question from Roland Moore. According to the Airbus article, notwithstanding the huge sales efforts made in 1975, the consortium had entered into what had become known as its black period when almost no deals were struck for 18 months and numerous white tails, which are unsold aircraft, were sitting in Toulouse. Production had nearly halted and there were even calls to shut down the A300 line. Around this time, Airbus persuaded Eastern to take four 
E300s on a no lease cost basis for six months and afterward Eastern would decide whether or not to buy them. The original approach that Airbus made to Eastern was to offer a 20% savings on direct operating costs per trip relative to the competing trijets. Charlie Simon's answer to this question. At the time, Eastern's motivation was simply that we didn't have the financial ability to get as many airplanes as we thought we needed. I'm sure that Airbus was visiting all the airlines trying to get customers. Northwest was very close to buying the A300 in the final analysis, then CEO Don Nyrop was reluctant to buy a non-U.S. airplane. As a successful airline man he was, he didn't want to take the risk. In the case of Eastern, we had very little alternative but to look for something like what Airbus was offering. So the talk started and we made a decision to go ahead and negotiate the best deal we could. George A. Ward, former CEO of American and head of Airbus industry in North America, never got involved in the detail, but was certainly supportive of what we were trying to do. I always remember when we got done with it, he said, if we, Eastern, can't make money with that kind of deal, nobody could. We recognized that this was a unique opportunity. There were three names important to us, Roger Battelle, Henri Ziegler, and Bernard Lathaire, who was the president of Airbus Industry. Lathaire was one that was in charge of the negotiating team on the other side. He also was the one that made a pass at my wife. I thought that the French had a unique way of trying to sell airplanes. If we weren't desperate, we probably would have stopped the negotiations then, but it was at a party in Paris and a magnificent dinner at an elegant pl place. You have to be part of the government to even use it. I remember Mary, my wife, coming over and saying, there was something that happened to me that hasn't happened in years. And the next question from Roland Moore. You said Bowman basically, Borman basically turned the negotiations over to you. Charles Simons, yes. We made the decision that we would try to see what we could do with Airbus and we would take on the risk of acquiring a non-U.S. aircraft. The second thing that was what kind of deal? We had a strong technical team that went over everything. They said the airplane would do what we wanted. I think it was important that in all the negotiations there were four European banks, French, British, German, and Spanish. It was very clear to me that they were there to finance whatever deal we could come up with. We were talking to the government and it was clear that we were going to be able to negotiate in a way nobody had ever done before. The manufacturer had the backing and would do virtually anything it took to sell the airplane. I was very fond of and close to the Boeing company. When we got all done with Airbus, I showed Boeing the deal saying, you know we buy your airplanes, see if it can match the terms of Airbus. They thought about it for a while and said no. Our relationship with Boeing was rocky after that, but we got back together again with the 757. With that decision, Boeing's biggest competitor was created. I don't know whether Boeing, with the benefit of hindsight, would have done something differently. T. Wilson, CEO and chairman of the board, made the decision. So Boeing could have matched the offer, but they turned it down. I'm convinced they didn't realize the magnitude of the event. Uh, Roland asked, how, how did the six-month no-cost lease come about? I think we have to put it into context. 
Once we started down this road, there were constant meetings. It's hard to say that one day we decided to take four airplanes for six months for free, but we were constantly looking for ways to make it attractive to them and to us. As I mentioned earlier, it was very clear from the beginning that we could get everything we wanted and things that we probably should never have asked for. It was nice to say how well you negotiated, but I was negotiating with somebody who, it was clear, had the assignment of doing the deal. I brought Charlie Glass and Rolf Anderson over to Paris because we were looking at details and numbers. We would have dinner and I'd say, what else can we ask for? I'd come up with some ridiculous things and they'd say, you can't ask for that, Charlie. And I'd reply, why not? It was clear that Airbus was anxious and they started to talk about when we supply you with some aircraft. We had to work out the details. The airport, Airbus support people were overwhelmingly committed to what they would do. Rightfully so, because up to that point, this was the most important thing they were doing in their company's career. They had to make it a success, no matter how many people they sent over or what it cost. Significantly, in all these meetings, the banks were present, and it became clear to us that this was a multinational air, effort to sell the airplanes, not just Airbus. One of the things we told Airbus, if I remember my numbers correctly, is that we were looking for something in the range of 200 seats and they were offering us a 240 seat airplane. Eventually we realized that we, they would compensate us for the differential between 200 and 240 seats. That is, they would let us have the 240 seat airplane and maintenance at a cost that equaled the 200 seats. Did Eastern send the pilots over to Toulouse for training? Yes, we used a simulator. We needed 26 crews for the airplane. All the training was included along with spare parts so they really gave us more than just four airplanes for six months. When was the decision made to keep the A300? We made the decision long before the six months were up. The four were included in the March 1978 contract for 23 A300B4s plus nine options. And Roland Moore asked, how does that tie in with when we first started to talk to Airbus? Charles Simon's reply, I think that when we first started talking to Airbus in 1975, so it was not an instantaneous decision. Roger Bittell and Henrik Ziegler knew that if Airbus was to succeed, it had to crack the lucrative U.S. market. They decided on a courageous move to take the A300 on a six-week odyssey across South and North America that would show the U.S. airlines that they would miss out if they failed to buy it. The trip proved to be the most unusual sales expedition ever undertaken by an aircraft manufacturer. On board were crew, sales team, engineers, and spare parts. The A300 was also loaded with the crates of the best champagnes for the thousands of guests invited to view the aircraft at stopovers. The key was that it was a unique opportunity for a manufacturer finally seeing daylight and four governments wanted it to happen and we all recognized for what it was. Charlie Simons was with Eastern Airlines from 1940 to 1981, last serving as Vice Chairman, Executive Vice President, and as a Director. And I think you'll agree that negotiations by Charlie Simons has had a significant impact on the airline industry ever since Eastern launched the A300s. Eastern Airlines presents 
a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This is a story about the Ford Trimotor. Eastern Air Transport began passenger service on August 18, 1930, between New York and Richmond, using Ford Trimotors. And after Henry Ford found fortune in the car business, he ventured into airplanes. The Ford Trimotor not only has a place in aviation history, it's credited as the first two-passenger airplane, but it was also one of the first planes to grace the skies of Atlanta, what was then Candler Field. A fully restored 1929 Ford Trimotor has now come home, at least for the weekend. The Experimental Aircraft Association has the plane at Gwinnett County's Briscoe Field. Earlier this week, WABE's Jim Burris took a ride on the old plane and in the process learned a little about Atlanta history from someone who experienced the golden age of aviation from the captain's seat. The sun gleams off the seemingly endless aluminum of the trimotor. It has none of the finesse of a modern jet. The belly nearly drags the ground. The high wings cast shade over the fuselage. And three massive radial engines sit pointed to the heavens one on each wing, another on the nose, the inner workings naked for the eye to see. Somehow, the tin goose, as she's known, is still remarkably beautiful. My name is Paul Kelly Jr., says the 84-year-old man who is about the same age as the plane parked just in front of him. As he sits with his wife by his side, Kelly comments that he thinks the plane is beautiful too. That could have something to do with the logo on the side. Eastern Air Transport Incorporated. I came to work for Eastern January the 3rd, 1955. At age 60, November 11th, 1985, I was retired, Kelly says proudly. After flying 28 combat missions in Korea, Kelly got a job carrying passengers for Eastern Airlines. By the end of his career, he would be the chief pilot for Eastern's Atlanta Division. And while Kelly's career took off well after Eastern had phased out the Ford Trimotor, he still has tales to tell about the plane. I get, did get to fly with some of the old captains that flew the mail wing. That's where your good stories come. Back in the old days, the mail wing, they'd fly from beacon to beacon. When they counted their beacons, they'd put the airplane in a very slow descent and just pancake right next to the beacon. The way I was told, Johnny Keitel miscounted his beacon and landed right on top of Stone Mountain. At least that's how he heard it. Kelly goes on to say Eastern was Atlanta's pioneer airline, flying airmail up to the East Coast. About the same time Eastern's trimotor graced Atlanta skies, another airline came to town. Delta came along slightly later, he remembers. Delta was flying from Dallas. Eastern was flying up the East Coast. Over the years, Eastern had a lot of competition, but under Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, he was very proud he was the only airline operating without a subsidy. Rickenbacker, a famed World War I flying ace, grew Eastern into one of the nation's top airlines. It was a different day in aviation. 
Folks dressed up in their best outfits to board a plane. As a new pilot, Kelly got to know the East Coast pretty well, flying daily from Atlanta to Boston. Each trip had 13 stops. Atlanta, Anderson, Greenville, Spartanburg, Charlotte, Danville, Richmond, Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia. At that time, it was Idlewild, but later Kennedy. Hartford and Boston, Keller recalled. Eastern enjoyed good years and bad, always in fierce competition with Delta Airlines. The carrier eventually went under, the last flight taking off almost two de decades ago. But today, Paul Kelly Jr. again will fly Eastern, this time as one of its nine passengers. Kelly watches as retired pilot Sam Bass fires the Tri-Motors three power plants left to right, each 300 horsepower engine roaring to life, shaking the aircraft to a degree that makes a few passengers nervous, not Kelly. As the plane takes to the skies over Lawrenceville, air rushes in through the windows and the drone of the radial engines drowns out any attempt at conversation. It's too loud to talk to Paul Kelly. It's also unnecessary. The smile on his face tells it all. A few minutes later, the plane's again on the ground. The engines are a bit quieter. Kelly comments on the flight. That's pretty good for a retired pilot. And just a side note about the uh, tri-motor. The EAA still operates a tri-motor, and uh, each season it goes around the country offering to ride, uh, to give you a ride for a fee. So if you might want to uh, ride on a Ford tri-motor, there's still an opportunity. Just go to the Experimental Aircraft Association's website, and they have a date, uh, uh, and the tour is listed there. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. The following appeared in the Eastern Air Transport newsletter, Newswing. The Sperry Automatic Pilot went officially into service over the Eastern Air Transport system last month when it piloted a big 18-passenger Curtis Condor from Newark Airport to Atlanta on a regular run. The plane made stops at Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Richmond, Greensboro, Charlotte, Spartanburg, and Greenville. This was the first time the valuable control had been used in actual service on a commercial airliner. The military services had used it on bombers and in aerial torpedoes. But Eastern Air Transport is the first airline to adopt the automatic pilot, just as it was the first to adopt the Sperry Horizon as standard equipment. Leaving Newark Airport in a thick haze with passengers and mail, the big Curtis Condor climbed to its cruising altitude, and the Sperry pilot was put in operation. It flew the plane unerringly to Philadelphia. Between that city and Baltimore, the air was extremely rough, but the gyroscopic control kept the craft flying steadily on its course. After leaving Baltimore, the automatic pilot was flying the aircraft through fog and rain 
when a military plane was sighted ahead. The regular pilot then took over control of the aircraft until the service plane was left behind. The flight was interrupted in Washington due to impossible weather conditions ahead. Pilot S.T. Jacobs and co-pilot G.J. McDonald were the crew who flew with the automatic pilot on its first regular trip. Miss Doris Frost was the hostess. A total of 37 passengers flew in the plane on its round trip. This article was submitted by Neil Holland, then the historian, uh, on the EAL radio show website. It was submitted on August 25th, 2014. Since the days of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. celebration. At Summer Savings, you can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to The story is from the book The Wings of Many, compiled by Neil Holland. The chapter is titled, Some Remembrances, by Elva Libby. When travel again became available to civilians after World War II, I experienced my first flight as a passenger on a DC-3. I crouched in sheer terror with my eyes closed for the duration of the flight, vowing never again to board an airplane. The terror remained on tap. My eyes remained closed, however, I did go on to fly in many planes as a stewardess. I stopped crouching and managed to walk upright in the prescribed manner, wearing spectator pump shoes. The only time I regressed to my crouching position was when I fell in and out of the cockpit over the wings bar. The second prescribed manner was the squat, which one had to master to retain a semblance of proximity with the jump seat. The name was due to the ability to jump out from under the precariously perched victim. The next challenge was the hat, which repeatedly fell off because of hitting the ceiling. The solution was quite simple. One merely walked with a bowed head. Many times necessity was mistaken for humility, for which I received rave reviews. I easily adjusted to walking with one hand on the overhead rack for balance. I can still do it today. You never forget good training. The airport identification symbols were difficult to memorize because they became confused with the table of elements. Three similar jugs on every flight were coffee, oxygen, and fire extinguisher. You had to exert extreme caution to avoid pouring a cup of oxygen or strapping on a mask of coffee. Viewing traffic lights through an open door to the streets below assured me that the door closing had not been mastered. 
Automobile headlights were excellent guides for landing, especially where no other lights were available. In appreciation for lighting our landings, we often gave the auto owners a tour of the Lockheed Lodestar. They expressed awe by its large size and capacity of 14 passengers. We often used extension and step ladders for mounting and dismounting one's aircraft. On the smaller planes, there were no public address system, one shouted. When later exposed to public address systems on the larger planes, many stewardesses were wary. Some never adapted and continued to shout. Light rain outside always meant heavy rain inside the DC-3. It was like the C-46. The Lodestar were tail draggers and assumed a steep angle when on the ground. Walking rear to front uphill was exhausting. Running downhill, front to rear, could be so exhilarating that you had to control your speed to prevent yourself from sh shooting out the door. The DC-4 was the first level floored plane on the ground. We employed the following checklist to assure this attitude. Stewardess to agent, pole up. Agent to stewardess, pole up. Stewardess to captain, pole up. The sophisticated equipment and the profound checklist were indeed taxing. With the advent of the DC-6s, two revolutionary items appeared, pressurization and a level standing plane without a pole. Additionally, the Convair, the DC-6B, the DC-7, and Super Constellation, in which I flew, contained these features. A new era had begun. In commemoration of my early years aloft, I bronzed my spectator pumps. Well, that's all we have for tonight. Harry and I hope you have enjoyed this little bit of Eastern history. Much has been written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines and by others in books, newspapers, magazines, and newsletters of the several Eastern Organization publications. They're doing their part in keeping the legacy of a great airline alive and well, even after the more than 30 years since its last flight. Why not add your memories to our Monday night broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline as told by its people and friends? Just send us your story and we'll read it on a future broadcast. Better yet, record it and send to e Neil Holland at yahoo.com. That's E Neil, N E A L, Holland at yahoo.com. It must be in a wake file or correction wave file format or an MP3 format. Your recording, recording will be part of the show in your own voice. Now until next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Harry Lindquist and Neil Holland Hope you have a safe and beneficial week. So long, Eastern family.